You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. As a nation, we have an important question to answer. How much do we really know our own heritage? Was America founded by a group of old white men? Or has our story always been diverse? Were we able to deal with the injustices of our past through malice and vengeance? Or did we strive towards a higher ideal? Was the United States founded upon oppression and injustice, advancing one people at the expense of another? Or did the founders actually mean what they said when they wrote that all men are created equal? Most importantly, will we continue to build a nation on a false narrative? Or is it finally time that we realize that the story of America is the story of all of us? As time has passed, America has faced many trials and hardships over the years. We have constantly strived to overcome our faults and failures. It is that effort to overcome that defines us, not the mistakes that we have made. Our heritage is one of an expansive liberty, not a crushing oppression. These are the stories of those who fulfilled the promise of America. Their legacy is our heritage. The only question is, will we live up to it? It is said that behind every great man, there's a great woman. That statement may not be more accurate than with John and Abigail Adams. The two amounted to a truly powerful founding couple. John was a stubborn, bullheaded, relentless advocate for independence, but this character trait would often get the best of him. Abigail was the perfect offset to her husband. She was womanly yet firm, and was often the only one who could get through to John when he was being overbearingly obnoxious. She was also his closest and truest friend, often in his darkest or loneliest episode. Especially during the early days of the Continental Congress, his contemporaries harbored an extreme disliking of the man. She remained his rock at a time when he was largely by himself, long enough to whip up the proper support needed for separation. Yet, Abigail was so much more than just the anchor in John Adams' life. She proved, indeed, to be the very backbone of America itself in the early days. Abigail Adams, born Abigail Smith, was brought into the world in Weymouth, Massachusetts on November 11, 1744. Weymouth was a village about 12 miles from Boston. This convenient location allowed her father, and eventually her, to be very active in the community and in local politics. William Smith, Abigail's father, was a very well-respected local minister. 
He was a member of the First Congressional Church and earned a living as a farmer. Abigail's mother, Elizabeth, came from a powerful family of her own. Her father, named John Quincy, was very prominent in the colonial government, even serving as Speaker of the Assembly for 40 years. These two sides of her family had a profound impact on her upbringing. She became very intellectually curious, and while she did not receive any formal education like most women of her day, she had access to her father's and grandfather's abundant library. She consumed literature to pass time, and she became very well versed on subjects to include history, law, philosophy, and the classics. Another important component that helped her develop her critical thinking skills was when she and her sisters received tutoring from a young man named Richard Crank. Richard came from England and became the girl's tutor when Abigail was only 11. As time went on, Abigail's older sister, Mary, fell in love with Richard, and the feeling was mutual. The two later married, and Richard became very close with the family. On one occasion that Richard visited the Smith's household while courting Mary, he brought a colleague of his with him, John Adams. Mr. Adams at the time was in his late 20s, but managed to be just as boorish and as blunt as he would later become known as later in life. Yet young Abigail was infatuated with him. John, on the other hand, felt as if Abigail and her sisters were annoying, but eventually she grew on him, and the two would soon fall in love. After a long engagement, per the insistence of Abigail's father, the two married on October 24, 1764, when Abigail was 19 and John was turning 29 just one week later. Abigail would prove to be exactly the kind of woman that John would need for a wife. Not many would be able to deal with the stubborn attitude and oftentimes unpleasant demeanor. It was easy for him to make more enemies than friends. Abigail often countered this with an equal level of bluntness and brutal honesty. Yet her firm approach with John was no less tender and compassionate. Abigail would cut through John's hardened exterior to get him to expose his true vulnerable side to her in a way that nobody else was able or willing to do. Because of this unique relationship, the two seemed made for each other. And their love and friendship blossomed into something powerful, reliable, and stable enough to weather many hardships that would come their way throughout the early days of the American Republic. But at this point in their marriage, the idea of such struggle didn't trouble their minds. Their only concern was making and raising children. Childbirth in the 18th century was always a serious risk. The danger of infant mortality or the threat of the mother's life was severe. Yet many women pushed through these risks because abundant children were often needed. Many employed hands were often required to help with household duties and chores, as well as farming and the agricultural society that they lived in. Unfortunately, there was also little guarantee that children would make it into adulthood, and as morbid as that may be, this was very much a fact of life to consider when planning for children in that time. If you increase the number of children that you have, the higher the probability would be for them to survive into adulthood and care for you as you became elderly. Their first daughter they named Abigail, nicknamed Nabby. The other three were all boys, named Thomas, Charles, and of course, John Quincy Adams. All of their children would grow up to become incredibly bright and capable individuals. But the revolution and the early days of the Republic took a significant toll on them. 
Charles, in particular, was especially troubled by the toll that John's absence put on them, and would severely damage his mental state later on in life. In the late 1760s, however, they all had the world in front of them, with two incredibly capable parents to take care of them. This, however, would soon change. Less than a year after the two were married, the first steps towards revolution had already begun. The Stamp Act was passed in Parliament in 1765. Over the next five years, in Massachusetts in particular, the colonists would suffer from British oppression. Revolutionaries like John's cousin, Samuel, would rally in the streets, mobilizing citizens to take a stand against British tyranny. During this time, John and Abigail would discuss the issues of the day, just as John would with any of his colleagues. Rather than shunning Abigail out of such conversation, Abigail would often enlighten John's perspective on political issues and help guide him to make the right decisions when the time was right. Abigail was John's biggest cheerleader when he was right and his biggest critic when he was wrong, but it all came from a place of endearment. This greatly differed from many other couples of the day who often did not speak of political matters at all. This came to a climax in March of 1770 after the Boston Massacre. From there, John Adams was asked to make possibly the most dangerous move of his career, defend the British troops to a Massachusetts jury. Of course, John relied on Abigail for her comfort and sound advice. This was perhaps the first great test of their marriage and character. While, like most colonists of the day, both were proud British subjects, they were also both ardent supporters of the Patriot cause. Yet, John found himself unable to condemn the men involved in the massacre without the absolute evidence that they did so intentionally. His insistence to rely on the rule of law rather than the passions of man was a risky position to take, but it was a position that defined America for decades to come. Abigail, too, could have let her passions against the British get the best of her, yet she reinforced her husband's choice, and after John won the case, it proved to be the right choice to make. Of course, after this monumental case, tensions only continue to rise against the British. Protests continue as the government cracked down against the colonists. In Massachusetts, the Boston Tea Party only inflamed the spirit of rebellion in the area. The British responded by putting the entire city on lockdown. This sequence of events in the early 1770s provoked representatives from each colony to meet in Philadelphia for the First Continental Congress in 1774. Among the delegates chosen to represent Massachusetts were Samuel Adams and his cousin John. This would prove to be the next great test for Abigail, and it would seem to be the test that would last much longer than any town gossip surrounding the Boston Massacre. As John left to join the First Continental Congress, Abigail was left to raise and care for the children and tend to household matters by herself. This was no small task, and while John understood the stress that this put on his beloved wife, it was made no less difficult for her. Yet the two were not totally in the dark of each other's activities while separated. Even while they were so far apart, John and Abigail started to write one another in what seemed like an endless stream of letters. Their written correspondence would prove to be a staple of their relationship. As John established his reputation in Philadelphia, it was hardly a positive one. The other delegates came to know him as a loud, obnoxious, and pig-headed little man with a very unlikable demeanor. This made him very lonely in an unfamiliar city during a rather dangerous time 
when having allies meant everything. Thus, he would often retreat to his written correspondence with Abigail, where he would update her on the proceedings, and she would continue to offer her advice for what next steps to take. After John finally returned home to Massachusetts, it was a very short family reunion. That spring, in April 1775, the shot heard round the world rang loud in Lexington and Concord, officially launching the American Revolution. This put all the colonies in a state of crisis and frenzy. Much to Abigail's dismay, a second Continental Congress was called, and John was once again selected to attend. John's sense of duty prevented him from protesting this, but this provided very little comfort to Abigail, who understood that this once again would take John away from her and their children for several months at a time. Their children were reaching an age when a father's guidance was most needed, and Abigail was feeling increasingly alone. Still, John had to go, and Abigail knew this. So, given the inevitability of it, Abigail wanted John to make good use out of their time separated. As he went back to Philadelphia, she would constantly reinforce the idea to him that they mustn't merely make some lackluster concession to Great Britain when their neighbors and friends were being shot and killed in their backyard by British troops. She wrote to John in June of 1775 about witnessing the Battle of Bunker Hill and the brutality of the life around her while Congress debated in Philadelphia. She writes to John that, A people may let a king fall, yet still remain a people. But if a king lets his people slip from him, he is no longer a king. And this is most certainly our case. Why not proclaim to the world, in decisive terms, your own independence? They must accomplish nothing less than true liberty, if they were going to take the time to meet at all. Of course, John needed little convincing of this, personally, but the rest of Congress was another story. As he continued his written correspondence, he would relay to Abigail his difficulties in convincing his colleagues of what needed to be done. Abigail gave John the encouragement he needed to press on, and perhaps try different approaches to reach the same goal. Furthermore, Abigail started to worry that as the movement for independence grew, Congress would merely settle to trade one form of oppression for another. She urged John to remember that this was not merely a conflict over dissatisfaction, over taxes, but rather an epic struggle over the very concept of freedom itself. If Congress were going to declare independence but continue to permit slavery to exist or deny women an equal place in society, what was even the point in the first place? In March of 1776, Abigail wrote to John perhaps her most famous battle cry, quote, I long to hear that you have declared an independency. And, by the way, in a new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Rather, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. John, amused by his wife's fiery spirit, wrote back stating, I cannot help but laugh. You are so saucy. Abigail again wrote back, not letting John laugh off the seriousness of her advice, and reminding him that if liberty truly is the goal of the Congress in Philadelphia, it cannot exclude the liberty of women 
in a free and independent republic. John, of course, understood his wife's argument and urgency, but was also dealing with other pressures at this time. Much like the issue of slavery in the day, there wouldn't be any hope of achieving greater equality between the sexes if they first did not have an independent nation. Additionally, it was hard enough to gather support for independence in the first place. If he tried to include something more controversial into the debate, it would be a lost cause altogether. While the political realities of the day prevented John and Congress from doing anything meaningful in terms of greater equality between men and women, Abigail would certainly not forget the ladies, and kept up her pressure on John in the years to come. Abigail Adams is often seen as an early feminist icon from the Revolution. This is somewhat accurate, but while she certainly broke many gender norms of her day, she was also incredibly domestic and feminine when she needed to be as well. To her, the positions she took had little to do with overhauling some grand societal social structure. Rather, she was simply standing up to do what she understood to be right when the time called for it. Sometimes that meant urging her husband to, quote, remember the ladies, and to not forget that, quote, all men would be tyrants if they could. Other times it meant attending to wifely duties like tending to the house and raising her children when John was away for months, even years at a time. Abigail, like many women of the Revolution, just wanted to return to normalcy, but refused to stand by and let their children grow up in a world without freedom. This made them both powerful, willing to take up a rifle the second their husband couldn't, and tender, yearning for a life where their chief concern is the health and happiness of their husband and children. Of course, Abigail and countless other founding mothers desired equal treatment as well. They weren't questioning their gender roles or womanly duties. Today, we often project our own understanding of society into figures and events of the past. While Abigail may not have been a feminist in the modern sense of the word, she was without question a champion of the freedom to choose such a path. Her womanly strength came in play especially in the weeks and months following the vote for independence. Much to her disappointment, despite the efforts of both her husband and Thomas Jefferson, no outright proclamation of broader liberty and equality made it into the Declaration, although the framework was certainly there. She mirrored her husband's frustration with Congress, but for more slightly personal reasons. Every time they demanded something of John, it was Abigail left behind to care for their family. On top of all of this, John would frequently ask her for her advice on matters he faced in Congress. In a way, she carried both the Adams household and the revolution itself on her shoulders. Whatever major decisions John made in Philadelphia, Abigail was right there behind him, providing her sage wisdom as needed, which, as it turned out, was quite often. 
So when John was asked in 1778 to travel to Paris for a diplomatic mission to help Dr. Benjamin Franklin secure French support for the revolution, she was less than thrilled. John had already missed so much of their children's upbringing that they were running a risk of not having a father at all heading into their preteen and teenage years, despite this being an entirely avoidable issue. Yet both John and Abigail knew that he couldn't avoid his duty to his country. So, in order to ensure Abigail wasn't left alone with four children by herself, John agreed to bring John Quincy Adams with him. This would simultaneously lighten the workload on Abigail's shoulders and expose John Quincy to the broader world around him, thus setting him up for a very promising diplomatic career. John's mission to France would prove to be the greatest test of their marriage, and Abigail's faith in her own capabilities. While it was a difficult time for John, to be sure, Abigail not only had to raise their children by herself, but also deal with the cruel realities of a war without the protection of her husband by her side. She would maintain correspondence with John as much as she could while the two were separated for so long. This would prove to be no short endeavor. When he and John Quincy Adams arrived in France, Dr. Franklin had already secured a tentative agreement, so it wasn't long before John went to head off to Holland in an attempt to secure a loan for America. As Abigail wrote to John, she would include updates on the revolution. The Americans were reaching, at this point, a very low point in the conflict. She wrote that, quote, this year has not been a very glorious one to America. The unfortunate failure of their expedition against Rhode Island, chagrined, mortified, and disappointed to such a degree that they cannot yet mention it with patience, for they had every humane appearance being crowned with success and victory. Our arms have rather been employed in a defensive way. Additionally, Abigail would also remind John of the priority that the new government should place on women's education. Quote, you need not be told how much female education is neglected, nor how fashionable it has been to ridicule female learning. As time went on, John would eventually find himself still in Europe by the time the American Revolution had come to an end. Yet it was not time for him to return home just yet, with victory in the hands of the Americans, John invited Abigail to join him in France, which she decided to oblige. For four years, John and Abigail lived in Europe and enjoyed themselves among the highest political order of the most powerful nations. At first, they engaged in France as the Americans and the British signed the Treaty of Paris, officially ending the American War for Independence. Thomas Jefferson joined them in Paris in order to replace Benjamin Franklin as America's ambassador to France. While he had the privilege of meeting Abigail in Massachusetts before, he nonetheless could not hide his excitement in getting to see John's wife again. He wrote ahead of time that, quote, I hasten myself on my journey hither in hopes of having the pleasure of attending Mrs. Adams to Paris and of lessening some of the difficulties which she may be exposed. Abigail was no less infatuated with Mr. Jefferson. Thomas was a magnetic and charming man, and Abigail could certainly sense it. She referred to him as, quote, one of the choice ones of the earth. In a letter to her sister, Mary, she recounted that, quote, on Thursday I dine with him at his house. On Sunday he is to dine here. On Monday we all dine in the Marquis. 
and on Thursday we dine with the Swedish ambassador. Abigail was certainly infatuated with Thomas Jefferson, and it isn't difficult to see why. Thomas was a true Renaissance man, a man of talent and charisma. This was no romantic affection, but a fascination of respect and admiration. Thomas knew John and considered him a friend. He considered John lucky to have Abigail, and perhaps even envied him after the death of his own wife not long before. She was certainly a remarkable woman, whom Thomas would have surely enjoyed the company of on an intellectual basis. But his relationship with Abigail was nothing more than a close friendship. Shortly afterwards, however, Thomas Jefferson and the Adams had to separate for the time being, as John was appointed as minister to England in London. However, just because they were separated by the English Channel doesn't mean that Abigail and Thomas stopped their correspondence. They frequently wrote to each other about their different experiences in London and Paris. Still, both Abigail and John yearned to return to the United States, as they always felt like foreigners in a distant land. No matter how much enjoyment they had while they were there, in 1788, John and Abigail departed from London to the United States. Thomas was a bit dismayed that they had left, considering them both friends, individually, and as a couple. In fact, around that time, he wrote to James Madison about how he cared and cherished Abigail's friendship. She was, he wrote, quote, one of the most esteemable characters on the earth. Upon returning to the United States, John Adams came in second place in the nation's first presidential election, making him the first vice president of the United States, and Abigail, thus, the first second lady. As the two re-entered into American politics for the first time since the revolution began, it was apparent that there would be difficulties in solidifying the nation's government. John himself was troubled in his new position, as he had little he could actually do. As Thomas Jefferson returned from France to serve as the nation's first Secretary of State, he too faced difficulties fitting into President Washington's cabinet, largely due to Alexander Hamilton's presence and influence. While the Adams were more Federalist-inclined, both John and Thomas had their issues with Hamilton, and this allowed them to continue their friendship. This friendship, however, would be put to the test like never before, once John assumed the high office of the president after Washington shocked the world and stepped down after two terms. And as power tested the limitation of the friendship between John and Thomas, it too would test the friendship between Thomas and Abigail. John had the unfortunate and impossible task of following up George Washington. He, nor any man, could possibly live up to his esteem. Several Federalist members of his cabinet would make it even more difficult for him to live up to his predecessor. Because John didn't distance himself from Hamilton's men at the outset, Thomas became detached from his once good friend. And this detachment would only grow into an outright rivalry throughout his administration. Adams kept these cabinet members in a spirit of unity that George Washington wanted to overcome America. Yet, these Federalists brought much more headache to John than it did peace. Despite being a Federalist president, he did everything to continue the spirit of impartiality that Washington held. But he wasn't able to command the same level of respect. Because of this, he wasn't able to keep his Federalists nor his Republican allies by his side. Much like the hot Philadelphia summer of 1776, Abigail 
was his only true and reliable ally that he could lean on. The presidency was hard for Adams. They had to not only maintain national unity the best that they could, there was also a budding war with France to deal with. On top of this, they had to move into the White House, then known as the Executive Mansion, when it was hardly livable. Washington City was a disgusting swamp at the time, literally. With all of this happening around the same time, John made perhaps the greatest political blunder of his entire life. In 1798, he signed the Alien and Sedition Acts. Most notably, these acts criminalized speech and falsehoods against the president and the Federalist-controlled government. Notably, the vice president was not protected from the same kind of defamation. Of course, what constituted as a falsehood was determined by the Federalists in charge. Predictably, it was political opponents who faced the most severe scrutiny. Throughout John's presidency, Abigail was his rock. She performed the duties of the First Lady, then still very much being defined as time moved along. In many ways, she helped define those duties at a crucial time. She would meet with guests and entertain them. She would build relationships with politically appropriate allies. She would sometimes take meetings for John when he was too filled. She wasn't afraid to push back when she felt that John was making the wrong move either. Like always, Abigail would provide John with her two cents, whether he wanted it or not. Often, she would let him know that she felt he needed to be bold in his approach. Yet John did what he believed to be right, as Abigail gave the advice she believed to be true. Even with the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798, Abigail encouraged John to sign them. She believed the press had been undermining him, and it was time to put an end to it. While John was hesitant, he relented to his wife's advice. This was perhaps one of the few times that going along with his wife was a mistake rather than the correct course of action. The Alien and Sedition Acts were both unpopular and unconstitutional, and all but certainly sunk his political career and reputation. It also finalized the separation between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Going into the Adams administration, Abigail was optimistic that John having Thomas by his side would produce great success for the nation. She wrote to her younger sister that, quote, I have long known Mr. Jefferson and have ever entertained a friendship for him. He is a man of understanding, of probity. Between him and Mr. Adams, there has ever subsisted harmony. Though they have not accorded always in sentiment, they have dissented without warmth or ill will, like gentlemen. And Mr. Jefferson, I have no doubt, will support the president. Abigail perhaps underestimated Thomas Jefferson's conviction on issues that he viewed as a violation of one's inherent liberty. Thomas and Abigail would no longer harbor the same friendship that they once had after the election of 1800. The election of 1800 was perhaps the nation's greatest test. It determined that political power can indeed peacefully pass between not just two separate individuals, but among two individuals of two completely separate political parties. However, while the country would survive, the friendship between Thomas Jefferson and the Adams would prove more difficult to maintain. As president, Thomas Jefferson remained silent with John Adams, not writing to each other for years after how dirty the politics of 1800 became. However, a tragedy in Thomas's life, one of many, provoked Abigail to break the silence. In 1804, Thomas Jefferson's daughter, Mary, or Polly as she was known when she was younger, had died not long after childbirth. Abigail was overtaken by the powerful feelings of her heart 
and sent her condolences to Thomas, but she couldn't bring herself to rekindle their friendship fully. This didn't get overlooked by Thomas. He later recounted the letter by the disappointment rather than the comfort that it brought him. Quote, she carefully avoided a single expression of friendship toward myself, and even concluded with the wishes, quote, of her who once took pleasure in subscribing herself, your friend. Still a little bit hurt, Thomas Jefferson wrote back that he appreciated the letter and valued her friendship always, but also include a slight jab at her husband over a judicial appointment. This provoked a back and forth between the two, where they were justifying their own actions rather than mending their once powerful friendship. It wasn't until both of the presidencies had ended that some promising headway broke through. Dr. Benjamin Rush was able to convince the two former presidents to mend their old friendship and correspondence just before his own death. While they didn't always agree with one another, they were able to put politics aside and show each other respect for one another that was never lost, but just forgotten. Perhaps Abigail refused to make amends with Thomas until Thomas made amends with John. It would make sense, given that as soon as John eagerly informed Abigail of their rekindled correspondence, she too soon let go of her grudge. She even co-signed a letter to Thomas from her and John sending warmth and well wishes. In August 1813, Thomas wrote to Abigail independent of John for the first time in over nine years. They wrote about their elder children, the passage of time, and their grandchildren. While it wasn't perfect, and not even like before, Abigail found peace and balance between her love for John and her friendship with Thomas. In January of 1817, Thomas again wrote to Abigail, expressing the desire to someday soon see her again in a familiar location. Quote, Our next meeting must then be in the country to which time has flown, a country for us not now very distant. As he closed, he told her that, quote, You and I, dear madam, have already had more than an ordinary portion of life, and more, too, of health than the general measure. As it would turn out, Thomas and Abigail, nor John for that matter, would not be able to again meet as he described. In October 1818, Abigail Adams died at Peacefield, the Adams family farm, of typhoid fever. Thomas lost a good friend, but John lost his dearest friend. Devastated, he wrote shortly after her death that he wished he, quote, could lay down beside her and die too. Despite the crippling impact that this had on John and Thomas both, it also brought them even closer together. The founding generation had already been dying at an increasing rate as of late. Abigail's death only reinforced the finite nature of life. Both Thomas and John knew this. As if they needed more of a reason to maintain correspondence, the two fully rekindled their friendship to the life that it once was. These friends turned enemies were turned friends once again, and that wouldn't change up until the day they both died on July 4th, 1826, 50 years to the day of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. This was at least part thanks to the profound impact that Abigail left on both founding fathers. Abigail Adams was a profound woman. Few other people have ever left behind a legacy as powerful as hers. She is remembered today as a champion of women's rights and a fearless voice for freedom. This much is certainly true. 
But perhaps what is even more impactful is her reliable, good-natured womanhood, ready to be the backbone for John, her household, and America when she was needed the most. There is no question that Abigail Adams was the founding mother of this nation. If we all, man and woman, took inspiration from her life and legacy, the world would be in a much better place. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in to this week's edition of Profiles in Liberty. It is such a pleasure to bring you these stories, uh, especially with someone as uh, impactful and as powerful as Abigail Adams. I think that she is a titan of liberty throughout history and throughout the American Revolution. And I hope that you enjoyed her story and her correspondence with John Adams and Thomas Jefferson uh, throughout her life. Next week, we are going to be continuing the theme of founding mothers as we start to close out of this season. Uh, next week, we are going way back into the 1600s with Anne Hutchinson, one of the first foremothers of the United States. We only have two weeks left of Profiles in Liberty. Two episodes are remaining, so please be sure to subscribe. Please be sure to share. Give us a rating and a review. Spread these stories as far and as wide as you possibly can. These are some of the stories that have inspired me, uh, and I hope that they inspired you as well. You can follow me on Twitter at Caleb Franz. You can follow We Are Libertarians on Twitter at We, the letter R, Libertarians. Until next week, this has been Caleb Franz with Profiles in Liberty.